You're listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This week, we're sharing the Q&As following our patron evening screenings of Yesterday, the new film from director Danny Boyle and writer Richard Curtis, and Maiden, a new documentary about Tracy Edwards, who, at 24, became the skipper of the first-ever all-female sailing crew to enter the Whitbread Round the World in 1989. Following our screening of Yesterday, director Danny Boyle, screenwriter Richard Curtis, and star Umesh Patel joined our deputy director Eugene Hernandez for a Q&A. We'll go to that first, followed by the Q&A for Maiden, featuring Tracy Edwards and director Alex Holmes, joining our executive director Leslie Kleinberg. Looking forward to talking with you. I've got a few questions, and we'll take some questions from the audience shortly. Um, there are a few different topics I want to explore uh, with this um, with this film, but I, actually, I want to um, maybe start with uh, your lead actor. And uh, congratulations, Mesh. thank you. Uh, terrific performance. What a discovery for us. Um, but I would love to know how the maybe as a starting point. Tell me how the three of you came together. Tell me about the, tell me about how you found each other and tell me about the first conversations you had about this, about this movie. Well, the, fir the first time we met, uh, well, I, I won't ever forget the first time we met. No, it was my first, uh, I would sent off a tape and then I'd come, I was in New York actually when I taped for it and then I uh, came back to London and I met Danny and Richard uh, at the Jerwood space in, in London and, um, I was terrified, obviously, <laughs> um, but I had to prepare three scenes from the script and a couple of songs. So I came, I think we did the scenes first, didn't we? And Which we, scenes were they, do you remember? Which do you remember scenes what? were they? I think it, uh, one of them was, uh, was the scene, the, the big secret scene that you no know, one's allowed to tell anyone about, and the other one was uh, the, oh, let it be, was it? Let it, it be? Yeah, it'd be the comedy scene and Leave then the Ellie scene. And yeah, there would have been an Ellie scene. Oh no, it was the latitude scene. Don't give up. Yeah, scene. Yeah. Um, anyway, and we had a fun time. Then I sang yesterday. Um, by which point, apparently, you were sick of yesterday. Um, <laughs> so then I, I sang back in the USSR, and. I think you both quite like that one, I think, yeah. Well, we decided randomly to give the part to the person who wore the whitest shoes um, <laughs> to the audition, and that's, that's why you got it, there just go. to say. I haven't, haven't changed my clothes since. <laughs> so, in all seriousness, t tell, tell us about what, what stood out in, well, what, it, in the it, scenes, it, in the songs. Yeah, what, 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 what's interesting is it's such a wonderful idea that, when Richard's script arrived, it was such a glorious idea. You don't really think about the consequences is, is that your, 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 your film is going to be based around someone singing 15 to 17 Beatles songs, but not by the Beatles, by someone else, which seems like a wonderful prospect, except that when you start to get people into audition, you begin to think, oh, my God, if this doesn't work if you don't get the right person who can actually make you listen to the songs anew, you're gonna be dead, really. And we started seeing, it, it, it thins out very, very quickly, because it's not like horse riding, 
or, um, you know, or, or sword fencing, which actors tell you, oh, yeah, I can do that. No problem. And that actually, they've never been on a horse in their life. But if they get the part, they'll go and try it. You know, they have to come in and actually sing and play with a guitar. And we saw lots and lots of people who were much better than Himesh um, <laughs> at, 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 sing, at singing and, and playing. Honestly, they were. Um, but they had. They weren't available. <laughs> But they had. What do you mean by that? No, I do mean something very serious by it. Is that it was because I, we were. I'd begun to have a small kernel of fear that this idea wouldn't work of having somebody do the Beatles on their own for fifteen and seventeen songs. It wasn't very. It wasn't very developed then, but it was there. And um, and then he came in and he sang, and it was like yesterday. He sang yesterday, which we were sick of by then, because everybody chooses it because it's quite simple to master quickly and, and very touching. But we, he sang in it, it was like, I had this reaction like it was his song. And then, and then put your, the rational part of your brain is going, no, it's not, it's Paul McCartney's song. So that duality is perfect for this role. And then he sang USSR, and I was bouncing around, which you're not meant to do as a director in an audition. You know, you're meant to stay behind the desk or whatever, but, um, and I thought, and it had soul really. And we hadn't seen that quality in anyone else so far, really. Yeah, there was a lot of, lot of jazz hands, um, you know, a lot of feeling that people had been to stage school and also all that they wanted to be a pop star. And I think what we got was a really sort of humble, true, interesting, you know, complicated version of the songs. And then also Himesh did the funny as well, which was which tends to knock out about fifty percent of British actors. <laughs> Himesh, in fairness, give us the other half of that story. Tell us the story from your perspective now. Uh, Tell me about how you prepared for that presentation, that audition, and also um, how did you feel about how it went? Or did you feel like connect? You feel like you were connecting, or did? Well, did you I, I prepared you uh, mostly in New York. Actually, I was I was in New York, as I say, when I taped. So when I found out that I was going back to London uh, one day early to meet Danny and Richard, I I basically spent what was meant to be a a seven day uh, a holiday with my girlfriend. <laughs> Wound up being, can you run lines with me, and um, and does this sound any good? Um, and so I was just preparing. I borrowed my friend Steph's guitar, and um, I spent hours every day um, preparing. And then I went to London, and yeah, it. it I, I, what's helped me through this entire process really has been uh, Danny and Richard's. I mean, personalities are just the kind of people they're not gonna. They never made me feel pressured. I never felt you know any sense of who these two are, <laughs> who are two of our, you know, greatest filmmakers. It now feels weird saying it in front of them, having, <laughs> having gotten to know them over the last 18 months, because they immediately put me at ease. You know, the minute I walked into the room, I didn't feel like I was uh, in the presence of people who are particularly aware of their own, uh, you know, importance within our industry. They, they, they really made me feel uh, comfortable, and that really helped the whole situation. Um, so as much as I was bricking it a bit, it was um, it was a really fun experience, and especially when Danny started dancing around <laughs> to back in the USSR, it was, it was you know it was it was gratifying to the point of me leaving that first audition, going, you know what, whatever happens now, and I'm sure everyone under the sun is putting their hat into the ring for this one. I had fun, and we had a good time. 
So to now be here doing all this is kind of crazy, but yeah, felt good to begin with. Congratulations. Um, in that process, Danny and Richard, and, and as you're talking, help us understand, give us a window into that casting process and, and maybe the challenge you were facing in trying to cast this role, but also uh, how do you know when you've sort of found that, that, that right person? What, what was it that you talked about, you know, the way he interpreted the songs, but I mean, what, what was it that clicked with you? I, I didn't really know at the time. You, you, you kind of have an instinctive feeling, and I've only really had it once before with Kelly MacDonald in Train Spotting, who was the young girl in Train Spotting, where they come into the room and they do something, and you just think, that's them. I can't explain it. The studio won't be pleased because they were looking for somebody with a bit of a name. And although Himesh was on a TV show in Britain at the time, EastEnders. It didn't really mean anything to Universal in Los Angeles. And the film was expensive because the Beatles songs cost a lot of money. So, um, but you know that's the person and you go with that. And, and it's only subsequently when we worked on the film and especially when we worked on the songs, that you, what's extraordinary about the songs I think is that they, they are the most joyful songs they could ever be, but there's a, a, a kind of sub note of melancholy in them always, somewhere in them is all the lonely people, or, or she's leaving home, or, or there's, a, there's just a line that's full of longing and loneliness and tenderness and melancholy. And, um, and I think Himesh has that quality, um, or finds that quality in the songs, connects with that quality in the songs, and it was that quality, because he's very funny, very dry, so the comedy stuff, like Richard said, no problem. Got on wonderfully with Lily. They made a wonderful pair together, working together. And then, he, and then he had this connection with the songs. And the danger for a director is the technical process of filmmaking ruins it because the, they want you to record the sound beforehand and sing it you know, to playback, mime it to playback, and all that kind of stuff, which I didn't want to do. And everything you've heard tonight was, is Himesh live. And, uh, and the playing and the piano and the guitar is all him live. It's all live recordings. And because they vary, which is why they want you to, to record it beforehand, because takes vary in tempo minutely, you can't mix them. So that limits you going between takes. But we accepted all those restrictions in order to commit to a live performance because it had this soul in it that we couldn't really, we were never going to find anywhere else really. So we were blessed really. And you're shooting it with multiple cameras then, so you can have the... So, that, so you've got, yeah, so that, so that you've got two or three choices within, within a, a particular performance of one of the songs, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let, me, let me take another, let me take a couple of steps back, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about sort of where this ingenious concept came from. Danny's already talked about sort of into the process, thinking, is this really going to, can we pull this off? But uh, Richard and Danny, maybe tell us a little bit about how, how you started talking about this. Well, it's a very, it was a strange <clears throat> one for me because the actual, I was rung up by a friend of mine who said, I've got this script which has this, which is based on, and he gave me the one sentence pitch. There's an unsuccessful musician who wakes up to find he's the only person who um, uh, can remember the Beatles. And I said, I'm so passionate about the Beatles, and I, that sounds interesting to me, and can you not tell me anything else? Because I'd like to just write it from here. So slightly like Imesha's character, I feel here, I'm here under false pretenses. Um, but uh, uh, so I, I took it on from there. I'm a absolute, I mean, I was 
passionate about the Beatles when I was seven and I'm passionate about the Beatles now I'm 62. I'm so looking forward to going to the Isle of Wight on my 64th birthday, which I will definitely do. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I developed the story from there, wrote the script, and then by some kind of divine chance, the day I finished it, Danny wrote to me about something completely different and then said, would you be, um, if, if you've got anything in your bottom drawer, do send it to me, because I'm, I'm free for a week or two. And then I sent him the script uh, unwillingly, and he can take, it. I mean, not unwillingly because I knew he'd reject it. That was the reason, not because I didn't want him to direct it. Uh, and, um, and uh, well, you can take it on from there. And, and Danny, you just yeah, often so, go so, out to people fishing for next, next projects? No, 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 no. I, I just wrote it out of politeness. I, I said, I didn't mean Stand it. Oh, yeah, I know. I didn't mean him to send me anything. I thought, I'd just say it. And he said, well, funnily enough, here's a script. And it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. You have those moments where you just, um, you know what you're going, that you should just do it. And you say, you don't talk to agents or any, or think any of that stuff about budgets or any, you don't even no think. Pause. Will there was we, no pause will, for you? No, 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 you, no, you don't think, will you ever get an actor who could do this, which you should reasonably do, because it's very difficult to ask someone to do all that. Um, you just commit to it, and, and we'll solve everything once we start, once we get going. And they're the best decisions you ever make, you know, those passionate ones, and then everything unfolds from there. And um, it, was a, it, was, it was a kind of like it's, um, yeah, it was a summer that we spent in, in Suffolk, which is kind of in the east of England. And they all come from, I mean, Ed Sheeran's from Suffolk, and. He's not from, not very far from Suffolk, and Richard lives in Suffolk as well. So it was a wonderful um, um, combination, really. In fact, the film is sort of about Ed. Um, I mean, he he happens to be in it because Chris Martin wasn't free, but um, <laughs> he um, he Ed was raised just where all of that film was shot, and he he played on every corner. I remember him playing at the Ipswich Agricultural Fair. And um, but the lovely thing about Ed is he's a, a you know adorable man, nicer than portrayed in the movie, and he became very famous, gone all the way around the world. But he's just married a girl he was at school with, and he still lives in Framlingham. So in many ways, while I was writing the film, because a friend of mine, I was thinking about Ed and the sort of choices and the priorities that he's he's made, which I admire him for, and you know I strongly believe in them. To, stay at home and marry a girl he went to school with. Although I must admit I failed to do that because Tracy N. Thompson, I gave her a ring when I was seven, which I'd stolen from my mum. And I remember her <laughs> throwing it out the window in the snow in Sweden. And my best friend was Tracy N. Thompson's brother, Greg, who I didn't like. Um, I was only friends with Greg because Tracy was his, was his sister. Well, then maybe I deserved my fate. Anyway, um, we'd, uh, we that's did, another, we, we did offer the uh, we did offer the part to Chris Martin first, and um, he couldn't do it because he said he was too busy. So, so that's when Richard wrote that devastating joke about fix you, <laughs> um, and um, and we moved on to Ed Sheeran. Although Ed Sheeran, so when we went to Ed Sheeran, we lied, of course, and said. Ed, you're our first choice, will you do it? And he said, no, I'm not, you've already offered it to Chris Martin. 
So on the pop stars Facebook world, the private pages, they operate, it clearly goes round a bit. And he said, and you've offered it to Harry Styles as well, I hear. And that was absolutely not true. We had not offered it to Harry Styles, even though he was very good in the Chris Nolan movie. Um, and, and fortunately, I did it. And it seems extraordinary now when we look back. So much of it, of Himesh's journey, as Richard said, mirrors Ed's journey in a way that it was bizarre that we should have ever thought of Chris Martin in the first place. So I remember, I remember I asked Ed Round to meet Danny and he, he hadn't done his research. And so he knew Danny had made train spotting and Slumdog. And then halfway through the meal, um, he Googled him, I remember, on his phone. <laughs> and he looked at me and went, The beach. I went, yeah. 28 days later. I went, yeah. And he realized that he had seen all of Danny's films and it would be worth learning to act in order to be in the movie. Um, hey, dude, where did that come from? Do you know, it's my one regret in the film that we should have had Ed also suggest that the chorus should be yes, 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 yes at the end instead of na, 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 na. Um, I'm so cross we didn't think of that at the time. Uh, I think it must have just been a, a silly joke. When I'm writing, I do joke days where I've, I've sort of written the film and then I go back and just try and make it more stupid. And that obviously, <laughs> that came out on one of those days. Well, the one, the one thing we haven't addressed yet, although you, you referenced it for a second about you know, the, the cost that would be in, in, in the cost entailed in it, but you, the cooperation of the Beatles getting access to their, that library that those songs what kind of conversations were, were those and, and how challenging well they were all they were all had by working title the producers of the film working title who were the, the, the probably the largest certainly the the, the the most successful production company in britain are only are only mini studio really although they work very closely with universal here um had done this deal whereby they, we could get access and use of 15 to 18 of the songs from the catalogue, but that was it. It, it didn't say what they, we didn't have to nominate the songs, they could be the famous ones or the less, less known ones, and that which gave us a wonderful freedom in the preparing of the film, the shooting and even in the editing. And we changed some of the songs quite late on, you know, um, and it was wonderful to have that flexibility. Um, but yes, they have to, obviously, they monitor the use of their songs very carefully so that they're not misused in, you know, re-election presidential campaigns or anything like that. Um, you know, um, and... and um, I, I, yeah, if the movie had been about a serial killer who was very fond of the Beatles, they probably would have said no quite early in the process, but they kind of tracked it bit by bit. I think the only advice we were given was to keep the, you know, it was this sort of thing. They would say, try and keep the balance between Paul and John songs and things like that. You know, just a little bit of, of, of nudging from time to time. Himesh, did you get a voice in what songs would ultimately be chosen? And, and which ones were you most excited to sing? Which ones were most daunting, if any? I mean, I don't think I had any say overtly, you know, whether, <laughs> whether I played any early on and you went, well, we can't have that in the movie. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that happened. But I, I was kind of intimidated by the whole thing, really, to begin with. But then, you know, I was well supported throughout with by some brilliant people. Um, I was always really looking forward to Long and Winding Road, mm -hmm. but it, namely because it was one of those I was really intimidated by when I when I realised I had to do that one, and it was a moment in the movie, so I couldn't, you know, 
there was no fudging it. Um, and I sat down at the piano and I, I had, you know, this wonderful guy, Adem Ilhan, who's a musician, he came in and worked with me for about two months and mm-hmm. kind of helped me through that one. And, and I got it, you know, eventually in my own way. Because that's all this is really, is me doing it in my own kind of way and, and ultimately, I guess, Jack's own way. And, and that's kind of what our versions of the songs are. But yeah, we, you know, we had a lovely day shooting that Russia, you know, party sequence and and then I really love how it's ended up in the movie. It's it's a really tender moment, mm-hmm. you know, not just because of the song, but of course of the, we're also then seeing the Russian man kind of realizing his own part in the story and it, yeah. I really so it's been a real journey with that song actually it's been a it's been a long and winding road with that with that song it's um yeah it's been a it's been one that I was really looking forward to and I love doing it and I love where it is now I really responded to the version of help which I saw and then watched again tonight but were there versions that you that you tried one way and then went back and said well, that's we, just not the way I want to do it Danny I want to go some or vice versa that you said let's try it a whole different way well we had a version didn't we early on was so initially you know it was just me in this room with our dem with Daniel and then Danny would come in and give us notes and that kind of thing and and help was just one of those that I had I just figured out the chords and I knew how to play it and then we we got a band together because of course we knew that this was going to be one that we were doing with a band and we got them in and we we rehearsed it and I just kind of did it best I could and Danny saw it and and you were like no this has to be different you wanted it to be a bit punkier yeah that was terrible that moment because it was what you get is obviously that the Himesh is an actor who can wonderfully for us sing and play as well but when you surround you with the musicians who are musicians they tend to want to come into the space this is one of the dangers of of of, of the project and we had this and it's the only moment i i was quite angry about that the session musicians the backing band not their fault at all but were dominating him whereas i'm obsessed with him i'm not interested i wasn't interested in them i was like and i i, I was like angry that they were and so the t- and so we began to come up with the idea of it being a punk version and and it, and it was wonderful obviously what's feeding into it whether you know it or not is that john in writing the song it was a cry for help and 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 punk the anger of punk the cry of punk is a wonderful source for that and that so that was one of the few times where we stepped away from the beatles versions to to do sort of what you'd normally call our own versions but because it synthesizes beautifully with where he is as a character at that moment and if you are a beatles aficionado you'd realize yes of course that's what john always wanted the song to sound like and because anyway punk they slagged off everybody, didn't they? But they never slagged off the Beatles. Because yeah. in a way, punk grew, like so much else, grew out of the Beatles in a way, or could touch on it, really. And, and so it was a wonderful way of doing it. And that was the town that we were based in, and we appealed to, them, to the local people where they'd come on that afternoon for us. And 6,428 of them turned up, <laughs> these people. And then when they heard it was a punk version, they just bounced around and punked it around. And, it was the most amazing occasion for us all, you know, and it's the largest crowd cast call in the history of Britain, in Britain. Uh, unfortunately, the world record is held by Gandhi's funeral in Richard Attenborough's Gandhi, 
when one million people turned up for that, for that crowd call. So we were a long way short of that, but there you go. Did you guys have any reservations about the John Lennon scene? Well, it's very interesting. You know, we, we particularly with comedies, you want to uh, test them to see whether or not things that you hope would be funny would be funny and other things like that. And one of the questions they ask is, is this your, what are your five favorite scenes and what are your least favorite scenes? And it was interesting that that scene appeared on both. Um, I mean, we didn't have any reservations about it. I sometimes suspect it was the sort of lynch moment for Danny wanting to do the film because it's sort of strangest moment in the film. But the, you know, we, we wouldn't have cut it anyway, but the, the people who liked it did outweigh the other ones. But we always knew it was a complicated moment. But in movies, you want to, you, you want to be daring once in a while. Oh, I, uh, no, I, I didn't, I didn't. Though I could understand why people would, and we were very careful in the way the scene was played and, and who we cast in it and that it was done with great tenderness and affection because obviously it is something that should be a, it should be a, it should be a triumph for movies that a movie can do that for a moment. And you know when we walk back out into the city tonight that he won't be there. But for us, for two hours or for, you know, the few minutes that he is there, and that's a triumph of, of, of imagination over violence and horror and all those things that can happen, really. So, no, it's a, for me, it was a wondrous moment in the script and that I was determined to, to make sure that we did and, and, and tried to do properly. Um, if, if you, if you, we'd love you not to pass that on to anyone, whatever you feel about it, because obviously it, it is, it's, it's, it's one of those things that uh, unfolds upon you in a, in a very interesting way and, and to be respectful to everyone affects people in different ways, I think, understandably, yeah. It's really two, two uh, significant moments upon which the movie rests and, and, and they're really told through, through Himesh's face. The, the moment early on when he's coming to realize what world he lives in and then the moment he has this interaction with this other person and, and just sort of watching how you process each of those moments and, and realizing what important moments of suspension of belief, and that's what movies are often, um, they are, right? And, that, and that's what really is, uh, I think, what can be really moving about the, the, the experience of watching the film, too. I think uh, th those two moments you're seeing, like that first moment when he's Googling frantically and everything, from that moment, I think Jack gives his mind to this situation and then he's just got his mind on it, you know, his heart is out of the equation for the rest of the movie until he gets to that moment where he knocks on the door and he sees the person behind the door. And I think at that point, his heart returns to the story. And I think that's kind of, for me, that, that moment is one of those moments where you, you give your heart to the story or, or maybe you don't, but I think, I think it is one of those moments where it's all about heart. Hi, I was wondering if you would talk a little more about your decision to end the movie without ever shifting the universe back and just sort of ending sort of like in the status quo? Actually, we are, I mean, one, we didn't want to be too much like Dallas. So much of my work has been based on Dallas, but um, I think that 
but it never actually occurred to us to do that, actually. I mean, I never thought the, the, that, that that would be something that, that we'd do. And in fact, my favorite scene in the movie is one that I didn't write, which is the final scene of Obladi Oblada, which was just sort of watching how things have changed back and how he's almost back where he was at the beginning, you know, and just teaching, which he said he, he, he didn't want to have to go back to and married and with the kids and everything like that. It wasn't, it never occurred to us really. I think it, I think if it had occurred to me, I wouldn't have liked the idea, but um, it, it always seemed to me the world just had changed. Uh, bravo, this is an honor to be here. Um, so I guess this would be for Mr. Curtis, uh, mostly when you were writing the script, um, and there was certain emotions that did come up a lot throughout the film. Um, were there any inspirations for something like Damn Yankees, where you sort of, you know, we all think of this as like an act of God, where it was a miracle for you to become a, a rock star, but uh, in actuality, it's sort of like selling your soul to the devil because you're, you have everything, but you really have nothing uh, in this movie because these are not your songs, and you really start to see that pain come through, uh, that you're sort of lying to everybody. Um, I was just wondering if, if any of those undertones, aside from their cheer story, came through. Well, we did talk a lot about imposter syndrome. You know, that, that is something that I think everybody feels in their lives. I had a lot of times on the film when I was trying to convince Danny that a scene would actually be funny. Uh, and then I would go away thinking, will it be funny? I don't, I hope so. So, you know, I think you all still feel feel doubts from you know from from day to day and that's one of the things I, I i feel like an imposter being a father you know there's a job i haven't trained for and i'm not doing too well at uh so i i think that was one of that was one of the themes that it was it was very much about and then the other one is just the choice in how you spend your life you know and i think one of the things this film is also about is love versus work, which I suspect we all think about a lot of the time and how you make that decision. And this is just an epic version of that. You know, does he focus on the most important thing in his life or in this case, something that's less important because it is based on a, on a lie. Do you feel like an imposter, Himesh? Every day. <laughs> Danny, can you relate to that? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, absolutely. You feel you always feel like you're going to be found out. Uh, you always feel like somebody's going to walk in and denounce you as being um, <laughs> a fraud and a charlatan. Really, I think it's partly because we borrow so much anyway from as part of the process. I think it's probably. Um, I don't think you're allowed to in music because because obviously they have that law, don't they? Where if it's more than five notes in a, in the same order. Then it's a then it's a a, a, a court case, yeah. um, but in film it isn't, is it? Because we 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 steal all the time from from other people and other things, and and because it's a medley, we don't. Everybody seems to forgive it, but you're always worried that you'll get found out. Really, I suppose. Yeah. If I was just reading a book about the Beatles the other day, and they said it twice. They said with without Chuck Berry, there's no Beatles. And I think they also said the same about Elvis. Without Elvis, no, there's no Beatles. It always comes a shot when you go back to those early albums that there are six or seven covers in all of that. So I think even at the beginning, they felt, well, we are writing some songs, but we better put some good songs on the album too, you know? So I think maybe even they felt that. Um, well, last question, it's really a softball, just because I'm curious. Uh, what's something each of you are working on now that you can share with us or tell us what you're up to these days, besides 
getting this movie out into the world. I'm uh, currently working on the new Armando Inucci series for HBO called Avenue 5 with Hugh Laurie and Josh Gad and lots of brilliant actors, so that's keeping me busy. I'm working on the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. <laughs> that's, that's my job at the moment, seeing if we can sort out climate and poverty. Thank you for that. I, I, I'm chasing the life rights uh, of a story, uh, but we haven't got them yet, so I can't tell you what it is because the price will go up. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Um, to the three of you, congratulations, and thank you very much for being here with us thank tonight. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tracy Edwards. I told you. The director, Alex Holmes. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you all for staying. Um, really appreciate it. And um, it's such a beautiful film. I love watching that. And uh, it just it gives you goosebumps. It really does. Um, I wanted to start, um, Tracy, how your story is told here so beautifully of that particular voyage. Um, how did you get connected to this film? And um, how, did the, how did this film start for you? Let's start there. Well, I went to a talk at an elementary school in um, very close to my home in London. And I have to admit, I really didn't want to go. I was been a long, exhausting day, and I was thinking, Ugh. but I, I went because I'd made a commitment. And Alex's daughter was at this school. And I think Alex was also thinking he wasn't too enthusiastic about <laughs> attending this evening. <laughs> Third daughter, another one of those school evenings. Um, and then as I gave my talk, I will hand over to Alex because he tells the story so well. Well, I, I don't know about that, but, but uh, yeah. So I, I heard Tracy talk at my daughter's school. And uh, I mean, the minute she stepped on the stage, I'm sure having seen the film, you can tell she has a, an energy about her and a determination and a drive that was instant. And she had these kids wrapped from the word go, these 11 year old kids. And as she told her story, I, I could see this film unfolding in front of my yeah. eyes, I felt. Uh, it seemed so obvious to me. In fact, I, by the time she'd finished, um, I was so convinced that it must already have been made. I couldn't see how this couldn't have been made into a film. Um, so my first question afterwards, I went, made a beeline straight for her. You know, I'll, 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 I'll congratulate you. So my daughter was leaving the school, so they were all getting certificates and everything. So I'll, I'll, I'll speak to you later, darling. And went straight to Tracy and said, has this ever been made into a film? Um, and she said, no, surprisingly not. It, and it was only later, I mean, we were slightly at cross purposes because I was immediately thinking about a dramatic film this was a story that happened on the sea, a long way from land, in the worst conditions for cameras, before the era of the iPhone. What were the chances of there, of there being footage? And it was only later that Tracy said that, that they'd had cameras on board the whole way around. And that was my second question, was when did you find out? Because that footage is extraordinary. And was a crew there to make a documentary about you or just to cover the race? No, well, um, in the 85-86 race, the race before, I mean, there was really nothing at all. I mean, I had my little Instamatic camera and took a few snapshots, but that was it. And then in the 89-90 race, the Whitbread race committee had a brainwave and they, they asked for volunteers 
um, if, if boats wanted to film. And, and of course, all the guys were like, no, no, we're, we're very serious ocean racers and we can't <laughs> possibly spend time filming. And we went, we'll film, we will, we'll do it. <laughs> so they gave us a camera and we packed Joe off, the, the cook um, on the boat. She said, I'll, I'll film, I'm, I'm, I don't do a watch. So we packed her off on a film course, four days. <laughs> and then she came back to the boat. And I think, I mean, some of the other boats did have cameras, but I think what we did that no one else did was we practiced. The guys just took them on board and then read the instructions or rather didn't read the instructions when they'd left. So we went out and practiced and we realized the first time we had a, a full scale emergency on deck, you know, all hands on deck, Joe came up with the camera and I went, you can put that down right now, put it down. So she went, well, this is a lesson. What are we going to do in this situation? So we ended up being the only boat that had a second camera mounted on the radar mast. And so when it was all hands on deck, we, the last person out, the rule was you hit the panic button and it would start filming. And that's some of the really great shots that make you feel quite seasick, that makes you sort of feel as if you're moving with the boat, which is quite weird. I, I know exactly those shots that you're talking about. Um, that's amazing. I had no idea that the cook was the camera person well, also. Uh, and that's where we lucked out, where I lucked out as a filmmaker, because, you know, it could have been, I mean, it was interesting contrasting the footage that we got from Maiden the, to, with the footage that came from several of the other boats, which, to be honest, was quite stilted. I don't know if you remember, there's a sequence in there where there's a guy talking on the boat, on Rockinore, actually, uh, about how Maiden is a, a mile behind, just putting up her spinnaker. And that was kind of, that's kind of basically what you got from the other boats. But what Joe was giving us was this amazing cinema verite, uh, this uh, portraiture. You know, she, as I'm sure you can tell, has you know, quite a highly developed emotional intelligence and she knows what she's looking at through the lens. And she was capturing the mood on the boat and getting under the skin of these characters. So when I started, you know, when we started gathering the shards of this footage from all over, it was it was just a dream. And and I was very fortunate in that I had an absolutely uh, genius of an editor, Katie Breyer, who then just had such an intuitive response to the to the material and started just putting it seamlessly back together. And I noticed you had all of the crew that you had interviewed, including the person that you didn't end up getting along with, and you didn't throw her out of the boat or anything, but just, you know, it, it replaced her with yourself. But what, what was that like? To, did you have a connection with all those people still, or did you have to find them in order to make them available for this film? Oh, no, we were all still in touch. We, we, you, you can't go through that and not be very connected, and we've always been very close no matter where we are in the world. Um, we've had mini reunions um, over the years. Um, but Marie-Claude and I are now actually best friends and she's in New York with us now. Um, because what happened after the race was she ended up doing the next race on Heineken, the next Whitbread Round the World race on Heineken. And we, we caught up after that and she said, you know, I, she said, I'm, I'm so glad I didn't sail around the world with you because we would have killed each other. And I went, yeah, I know. So it was the right decision, um, but it was done in a, a horrible way and and this was a lesson for a young person that I didn't tackle the problem soon enough and therefore what I put her through was awful and um, almost unforgivable really that I would let her get to two weeks before the start and then decide I, I didn't want her on the boat but we've we've made up and uh, now as I say we're, we're best friends and we've always all been in touch all the time and 
you'll forgive me because I really have no idea about the sport at all, and I was it was really very educational for me because I I didn't even know people did a race around the world. I thought that was the most amazing thing. Um, what is what has happened since this race? Are there other women? Have you continued to race in this race? Have other women subsequently uh, done accomplished something? Have they? Has any woman ever won this race? Women's never won this race, but there have been all female crews that have come after us. They have never done as well as us, but then these are projects that have been put together by men for women, and that's never going to work. Um, and that's been a shame. Um, so the clip around the world race, though, has just had the first woman to ever win around the world race. Um, and she's actually currently skippering Maiden. Um, Maiden's been restored and is now sailing around the world on what I like to think of her lap of, lap of honor um, with a younger, fitter version of us um, and some amazing women sailors. And, and what did come out of that, I think, is every woman that we take on Maiden now to, to, come, you know, to do this tour that we're doing, Every one of them says, I was inspired by Maiden, and now I can't believe I'm, I'm on Maiden. Um, so it's, a lot came out of it, but there's still a long way to go. Well, it's extraordinary. Just, I mean, that final scene when you can see how the public embraced you, and uh, it's really so beautiful, really very moving. Um, Alex, a little bit about your process in making this film. Um, how long have you been working on it? And it was at Tribeca this year. Um, but what kind of process, how long a process has it been for you? Uh, so, I mean, I guess in feature terms, you know, it's not unusual. But uh, between hearing Tracy talk that night at my daughter's school and having a film that I could show her was uh, four years. Um, and the first two years of that were a combination of, A, trying to raise the money, because even though I was convinced this was a great film, it was still difficult to convince other people it was a great film. Um, uh, and the second thing was uh, finding the footage, which was a, a, a painstaking job. Um, uh, and then really it was kind of 18, uh, sort of nine to 18 months cutting it. It was, a, you know, we spent a long time in the cutting room. This is one of those films that's made in the cutting room, which is why I reference Katie, because, you know, she's really sort of such a, a significant part of this. And, and Victoria, the, the producer, we were very much a close team making it together. Um, and uh, yeah, and then and then you know final post production when you have such varied footage, uh, such a kind of complex sound job to do. I mean, one of the complexities of the sound job was that these guys listened to music the whole way around, M music music that we could never afford the rights to because we were still making it on a shoestring. So we had to strip all that music out and do complicated stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it was four years uh, basically. But but I always think that was perhaps to our advantage because I think if we'd have made it really quickly, then the world may not have been a, as ready as it is now to hear this story, and it feels like it's fallen at the right time, so that's good. Yeah, it's very, very timely, and no question about it. Um, can I just want to take some questions from the audience, if there are some, ooh, look, all right. I just wanted to know your relationship after the race with the late King of Jordan. Well, we remained friends until he died of cancer, um, very tragically, in 1999. Um, he then supported my next sailing project, uh, which would never have happened again without him. Um, although we ended up with a major sponsor, Rawson Alliance, I put together the first all-female crew to race around the world um, non-stop to break the Jules Verne uh, non-stop around the world record. And again, I mean, I really did think that when we'd done so well with Maiden, I thought, ah, you know, I'll announce it, the, the, the sponsors will be queuing up. 
deathly silence again. Um, and one journalist even wrote, she didn't kill them last time, she's bound to do it this time. Which, you know, you just go, <laughs> really? So, I mean, it was on a 95-foot catamaran, which women had never sailed before, but, you know, uh, we, we sailed it, we broke seven world records, we didn't break the round the world record. Um, but if it hadn't been for him getting us to the point where we could have got sponsorship, uh, we, we wouldn't have done that either. I mean, he was just an extraordinary man. But he, he didn't just support me, he supported many, many people who you will have heard about, but you won't know that he supported them and, and paid for what they did. Um, so he was a visionary. Mine goes just basic business. You, in the middle of your trek to get there, you put everything at risk and you rebuilt the boat that I think was the, the laugh of the movie when we saw the, what it was, and you made it into something. So what were the finances at, in that era? What were the finances of going into it? And then how did you get out of whatever debt you put yourself into? Finances were always dire, I think is the, is the word I would use. Um, scrabbling from one meal to the next. Um, I mean, this is how I knew that I had the right crew, because literally when, when, it, when we chose a girl and she joined the boat, I said, right, so now you have to get a job, which has to be an evening job, because you have to build the boat during the day and do everything else that we're doing. So, so the ones that stuck it out for two years were the ones that ended up on the boat. Um, I mean, these were the days when and people would just turn up and volunteer. I mean, that would never happen in a round-the-world race now. They're, they're so well-paid and it's big money. Um, but it was still quite a Corinthian race at that time, and we were still in the process of moving from amateur to professional in, in ocean racing. Um, King Hussein saved the day by getting us around the world, but when we finished, I, I had promised to pay the crew a bonus because they'd been earning next to nothing on the race. So I had to sell Maiden at the end to pay for uh, the wages and the final bills, um, so ended up with nothing, really. <laughs> And that's how dreams are made. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, congratulations. It's a beautiful story and the film and the story itself and a, a very inspiring story of endurance. Um, I'm curious watching, you know, it's fascinating to watch you here and then to watch these years ago and like your other self in a sense. And, you know, even like, you know, watching you through the lens, it's like always contemplative, kind of like a, very like more closed in a way person than now I think. So I'm curious like do you feel you are the same person or are you a different person or how have you changed? I don't recognize the person on screen. I I feel I have no relationship with her whatsoever and that's quite weird. Um, I the, the, the problem for me is that I remember myself as a bit of an idiot, a bit of a twit. And when I look at myself being interviewed, I'm like, you sound much more sensible than I remember you being. Um, I do know that, well, I, I, I didn't know this, and I think the interviews that Alex has chosen to show have really, and, and Alex can speak for this himself, but have showed the development of all of us uh, throughout the race because you can see the sort of the nervous kind of, I don't want to be here kind of thing. Then you can almost tell when I've had some media training and, and I've learned how to actually speak to a camera without going, well, without swearing, um, which happened a lot in the early days. Um, but I know as I'm watching that, that there's so much going on in my head and I don't know how I managed to hide it all. So I'm actually quite impressed with my, with my 24 year old self. 
uh, and all the girls have said the same thing. They just don't quite relate to the person that they were. Um, we, it's, but it's very funny because we're all still pretty much the same. We've all gathered, we've all gathered together. You all recognize we, each other. We, I think. Yeah. <laughs> we, it's only themselves they yeah. don't recognize. So we're all in New York together. And I was just saying to Alex, you know, we, we, we met up in the hotel. We've been together for about two minutes and we're straight back into it. And you could tell, I mean, which, which uh, ones of us, um, you know, are. Uh, if I have changed in any way, I would say I've mellowed a lot. I'm easier to live with now. Okay, not a lot easier, but I am a little easier <laughs> to live with now. Um, this film is playing here in New York at the Landmark Cinema, so please tell your friends about it and make sure they know. We want to thank our friends at Sony Picture Classics for making this available. Where are you guys off to now uh, with the film? Are you continuing to uh, go off into L.A. or other places with it? Uh, well, we have a few few events here in New York this week, which is great. It's great to put it in front of people. I... I, I I made this film because uh, I found it an inspiring story and I want to share that with people also, but also because I think it's an important story. What struck me that first evening I, I heard Tracy was that a sudden realization that even though all this stuff happened 25 years ago then, um, that my daughter was going to face many of the same obstacles now that Tracy faced back then and she's going to have to take down all those barriers all over again herself. And that made me think not only was it a beautiful story, it was a really important story. Um, so we want as many people as possible to see it. Well, I, I hope you do. And I hope everyone will tell their friends about it. It's a really terrific film. My favorite, my favorite quote from your mother. I have to say this. I can't believe this little horror did this. That's my favorite line. God bless her. Thank you, guys. Thank you all very Thank much. You Thank, so you very much. much. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, Film at Lincoln Center presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. Film at Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>